is not here today. And, um, and so Bud, Bud Rednauer, let me see if I can, can y'all, can y'all hear me all right like that? Okay, I'll get all unattached from my other chords. But uh, Bud, pastor son, preached over at Bristol Road this morning. And a pastor asked me to, to preach here. And uh, so double duty today, all right? So take my guitar off. There we go. All right. Now I got my preaching mic on. I tucked in my shirt, wore a belt, ready to preach, all right? I didn't wear socks, though. I don't have socks on. <laughs> I do have some notes, though, in uh, my laptop. So y'all give me just a second to get all situated. Situated, that's what we would say in Alabama. To get all situated down here, okay? That's what my mom would do. Okay, Kevin, all right. Did you get situated over there? <laughs> all right, here we go. We'll get this. If y'all will, turn to uh, Romans. Turn to the book of Romans. Romans 1.16, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much, Lord. Speak through me and help people hear your word. Help people hear Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, today, what we're going to cover in our topic is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And when we read some of like the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of John or the gospel of Luke or Mark or, you know, and we hear Paul and he's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He even says, I'm eager uh, to preach the gospel. And you're like, but what does that mean? What is the gospel? A lot of people have different interpretations of it. And so Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, he came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to search out and to find the one lost sheep out of the 99. And then it says, and he came to save the lost. Save them from what? Save them from God's wrath. Save them from sin. Save them from hell. And so Jesus, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, he came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what the gospel is not, and this is where it gets really uh, eerie and really uh, distorted, I would say. A lot of people, I could ask uh, probably 20 of y'all and say, what is the gospel to you? And I might get 20 different answers. There might be some similarities, but there's going to be some differences too. And that is kind of the world that we're living in right now. 
you hear a lot of different gospel messages. And so I wanted us to be clear today, what is the gospel? The gospel is what changes people's lives. The gospel is what truly saves. But I can't give you my version of the gospel. I can't have somebody else come up here and give their opinion of the gospel. We have to know what the true gospel is. Here's what it's not. It's not good works. It's not your good versus your bad. That's not the gospel. Some religions teach that you better be a very good person and your good better outweigh your bad by the time you die, whenever that may be, and then if the good outweighs the bad, then you will go to heaven. You will be saved. If you pray this many times a day, then you'll be, then that's the gospel. Um, obeying the law, if you know the law, if you know the Old Testament law and you obey that to the word, every dot, every I, and cross every little T, and you obey every little single law, then that's the gospel. Then you're okay. You'll be okay in the end. Uh, being a Republican, that doesn't save you. That does not make the gospel in your life any more true. Being a Democrat doesn't either, or an independent, or whatever. Although television would like to seem otherwise, right? We're not going to stand before God one day and say, I was a really good Republican or I was a really good Democrat. Therefore, that's why I think I should get into heaven. That's laughable if you really think about it. That's really laughable. That's not the gospel. It's Jesus seeking and saving the lost. He's rescuing people from sin and death through his own sacrifice, through Jesus. And let's go to the next slide. We hear in... Uh, the next slide, it says, uh, what must we do to be saved? In Acts chapter 2, we find Peter, and Peter is at Pentecost, and he's preaching. Remember the Holy Spirit had came down, and people are speaking different languages, and there's interpreters, and people's like, oh my gosh, they've been drinking all day, and they're like, no, this is the Holy Spirit. I know it sounds crazy, and it's wild, but listen, there are people here from all over. There are people here that speak so many different languages and they were hearing their own language and they were hearing the gospel in their own language. And Peter stands up and he starts proclaiming about Jesus and what Jesus had did and what Jesus had done. And, 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 and people's response was, what must we do to be saved? That was their response. What must we do? And then in Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas and they're in prison. And they had been preaching about Jesus, and they were captured. They were told they can't do that. And so they were thrown in prison. And there was a prison guard that was watching over them. And at night, Paul and Silas, they had been beaten. They were bloody. They were bruised. And they were worshiping. And so I was just trying to imagine this, like, I don't know what the prison could have been like, but let's say it was, you know, like dark and like, you know, out of stone or whatever. And there was a guard watching them and they had the torches, you know, you have to wrap the cloth around and the torches and it's just kind of lowly lit. And there's Paul and Silas in one of the rooms and they are just singing and worshiping God. And at that time, an earthquake happened and it shook and it said that the jail doors came open the lights went out. It shook the torches to where they fell and all the lights went out. 
And then Paul yells out to the, to the, to the, uh, to the guard. He says, don't take your own life. What would have happened to that Roman guard had, you know, he lost his prisoners? They would have killed him. And so Paul, he yells out, he's like, don't kill yourself. Don't take your own life. We're still here. And so through that mercy and through that kindness and that love and through that worship and through the power of God, that jailer, the, the guard, he goes, what must I do to be saved? That was his question. They responded. And so his response, he says, in both these instances, repent and believe. Repent and believe. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. Right? If sin is here and all this garbage is sin, you name it, it's there, right? And we turn away from that sin and we turn towards God, which is the cross. That's the idea of, being, of repenting. I'm turning away from something, from sin, and I'm turning towards God, and this is my direction now. And it says, and believe. Believe has a lot more meaning to it than just like, I believe in Santa Claus, or I believe that my car hopefully will start today, you know, or whatever. Believe is having faith, putting your trust in, banking it all, trusting it all, everything, into Jesus. Repent and believe. And to believe what about Jesus? To believe that he was born of a virgin? Believe that he was the only sacrifice that, could, that, we, that we could have that could forgive our sins? Believe that he, he was God in the flesh? Believe that he went to a cross and took our sins? And then after they killed him, they put him in the ground and three days later he rose from the grave and then he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. And one day he will come back for us, believing and trusting that. Repent and believe. And that was, that was what these guys, they said, what must we do to be saved? And that was their response. And so then we find Paul in Romans. Look at uh, Romans 1.15. We can go to the next slide. Romans 1.15, this is Paul. Now, Paul, he's writing to the church at Rome, and he's writing to the Jews and to the Greeks. So if you are, uh, if you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile, okay? And so he's writing to both sets of people here, and he's saying, look, I am eager to preach the gospel to you and also to Rome. I'm eager to preach to you, to whom I'm writing this letter, and whoever else might be out there, I'm eager. My heart is pumped. I'm ready to get there. This letter's one thing, but man, I'm ready to see you in the flesh, man. I'm ready to see you eye to eye and to talk to you and to show you the experiences and just the miracle of Jesus. That is the idea. Like you can, you can you know, uh, go ahead and like in Romans chapter nine, you know how he addresses um, in chapter nine? He's so eager. This is, he, he starts talking about, he goes, I wish I could trade my own salvation for my Jewish brothers and sisters so that they would believe. I would give up my own salvation so that they would be saved. I know I've said that before, but man, that's a huge heart that Paul had 
for his brothers and sisters that didn't know Jesus. And so his eagerness. So who was his audience? Who was he eager to, te- to preach the gospel to? You can read ahead. It's, it's up to you if you want to read ahead. And it starts, it starts telling you, these are who I'm eager to preach the gospel to. It goes on to say that the people of Rome were so wicked and so warped in their mind, it said that men begin to have uh, uh, lustful feelings for other men. And women started having lustful feelings for women. And it said there are murderers there. There are gossips there. Uh, the list goes on. Slanders, people who hated God. The vilest of evil were there in Rome. And the verses before it, that one verse before it in verse 15, he says, guys, I'm eager to get to you, to preach the gospel to you. He knew that his audience was going to be tough. But he was, that's why he was so eager to get there. And then the next verse, I'm not ashamed of it. So um, before we get to exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote, I want to, like, let's go to the next one. The second great awakening, all right? The first great awakening in our history was like Jonathan Edwards and uh, some of these guys, and I believe this was like in the 1700s. Um, and uh, some of it happened in England. And, uh, and so then we get to the second great awakening. And the second great awakening... It helped, it was kind of, helped started in the early 1800s from uh, Timothy Dwight. He was the, the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. And he was the president of Yale. So think of people in New England, okay? Now, my wife, her school is uh, in Boston. And it's close, you know, they're, they're, they're in the vicinity, close to each other. But there are a lot of Ivy League schools. There's Yale and uh, there's Harvard, and um, my wife's school, it's called Simmons, and it's like an all-woman school, but it's a very prestigious school. It's very hard to get into. Uh, she does that online. Um, but it, it, just think, like, these are highly intellectual people on that East Coast side here, and they're talking about New England, where Yale is. So intellectual theologians from New England. Now, some of the people that... that that got involved, they started um, foreign missions. They just started having these prayer services. And these foreign missions, like the, the Baptist foreign missions came out of this. Um, the American Bible Association came out of this. A lot of people started feeling a burden that they wanted to take social action in their communities. And so they stood up against slavery. They, wanted to, they, they stood for the uh, abolition of uh, of slavery. They, they, they stood for the, the war on alcohol at the time, seeing how um, the abuse of alcohol was ruining people's lives, and they wanted to take a stand against that in their communities. They even stood for women's rights. I mean, a lot of this came out of, out of that second great awakening. And then some of the people, a little just a few years earlier, like early, early 1800s, like 1801, uh, there was this thing that some of the people from the east had started moving to the middle of the states. And they, had, they went to Kentucky. They might have went to some of the southern states. And there's this Cane Ridge revival in Kentucky. And this is like one of the first big revival movements. There was this Presbyterian pastor, and I'll tell you like the short version of it. It's kind of comical, but 
the, there's this Presbyterian pastor, and uh, intellectual, highly intellectual, probably, you know, moseyed on from the east and came over to the, you know, part of the southern states. They ended up in Kentucky, and he says, I want to put this uh, gathering on. I want to gather people, and we're going to preach, and let's just see what happens. And so thousands of people came out to this Cane Ridge Revival. There were some Baptist ministers. There were some Methodist ministers that went out there. Well, there were people there that went for religious purposes, but then there were people that went there to party. There was not a lot going on, I'm sure, in this town of Cane Ridge. And so they're like, hey, man, there's a ton of people showing up. I reckon we'll go out there and we'll see what's going on. And so they did. And so as men, they, they said for this week of revival, they said as many people were saved during this revival as many people were conceived at this revival. I mean, they were partying, you know, they, they, they had party time. And, and so uh, during that week, it became more about emotions and less about the intellect. And so the gospel message was like, do you feel God? Can you feel it? Do you feel the Holy Spirit? Right? And when that started happening, the Baptist pastor, the, some of the Baptist ministers started preaching, some of the Methodist preachers started preaching, and it got a little uncomfortable for the Presbyterian. And the Presbyterian was like, I don't know. I mean, I know people are getting saved and everything, and that's fine. But they simplified the gospel uh, so much that it became way more emotional than un truly understanding. And so the Presbyterian, he's like, you know what? This was great. Had a good week. There was a lot that went on in this week. But this is not what I foresaw in, you know, our grand scheme of things. Well, the Baptist and Methodist is like, this was awesome. Look how many people showed up. Let's keep this going. And so the Baptist and the Methodist preachers, they started having these revivals all throughout the South. And that's how come they became the fastest growing uh, uh, denominations is a lot of that happened from Cambridge. And they started saying, well, we need a church here in this town. We don't have a minister. Well, that farmer, he can read. Let's get him. He can read the word of God. Let's get him on. And he's like, hey, I kind of feel called. You know, I can preach or whatever. And so they would just get farmers and, and just these skilled trades people, you know, men to, to come in and to be the pastors of these little churches. And that's how come there was so many churches that just started popping up in the south. What we don't want to lose sight of is what the gospel is, right? So they, they, they might have said, we're going to explain the Bible in simple terms because we're talking with simple people. But it doesn't take away from what the gospel truly is. What is the gospel? So let's go to the next slide. What did Paul say? How did Paul approach that, that letter that he wrote to Rome? Uh, what did he say about it? Well, number one, we got a few verses to look at. He wrote this, Romans 1, 20 and 21. He says, for his visible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, speaking of God, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse for all they knew 
Uh, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It says that they noticed and they acknowledged him. They said they forgot to acknowledge God as creator. And so Paul is saying you have to acknowledge God as creator of all things. In the beginning, God. He created you know, the, the heavens and the stars and the, and the earth and all the planets and everything in it. And then he started creating all the animals. And then he got down to people and he says, I'm going to create man. I'm going to create him in my image. And out of man, he created woman. And he created them all for the glory of God. And then sin came into the picture in Genesis. He says, you can eat of all these trees. You can eat all this food. You can't eat of that tree. And what did they do? They ate of that tree. They disobeyed God. And sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, through that one man, Adam. Sin, it just killed everybody spiritually. They're spiritually dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins, as as Ephesians 2 would say. And then he says, well, through that sin, Romans 3.23, Paul goes on to write, for all of sin, they fall in short of the glory. God has all the glory and sin makes us fall short of that he's saying you your goodness doesn't doesn't make you part of my glory how much good versus how much bad that you do in your life it doesn't equal all have sinned and then he goes on to say in Romans 5 8 but God showed his love that while we were still sinners Christ died for us God provided a way through his son Jesus, by Jesus dying for us. And then in Romans 6, 23, it says, you know what, but the wages of that sin, that's death. You were spiritually dead, but when you die, you were spiritually dead. That means that eternally we go to hell and we burn in hell. That is a tough message to say. But this is what he's saying. I didn't say this. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Death in every which way you can imagine. Jesus said, and we talked about this on Wednesday night at Bible study. It was Jesus' words, and he says, in that place of eternal fire and torment, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said that several times. That was Jesus' words. He says this, comma, love that, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a great comma, right? That is a great pause to say that's not the end of the story. God provided the way out through his son Jesus. And then it says if we confess our sins and we believe, Romans 9, Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth, confessing your sins and then saying that if Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that believing and trusting and putting everything that you have into this, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified. That is a declaration saying just as if I had never sinned before. Justified. And with the mouth you confess and you're saved. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord and you say that and you confess with your mouth and you believe with your heart, it says that everyone who says that will be saved. 
Am I excluding anybody when I say that? Was Paul excluding anybody? Was he saying, this is just for the Jews. Jews, listen up. Nope. He was saying Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek. He was saying people all over the world, when they confess and they believe in their hearts, they will be saved. That's amazing. That means that there are people all over the world that are being saved and have been saved. This was so much bigger than Jews and the Old Testament and the law. John 3, 16, do y'all know that? Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We know that and we can spout that off from memory. But it's true. I was listening to some uh, sermons this week just about the gospel and about salvation and I came across one or a couple of sermons from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was born in the late 1800s. He died in 1981. And you can still listen to some of his sermons today. And he is very eloquent in the way he speaks. Like, I was telling uh, Ted about this. I was like, man, he just, you listen to him and he just kind of captures you. You can tell, like, in, in the sermons that I listen to, he's old. You know, you can tell that in his voice and experienced, but eloquent and loving. And, and uh, he was a minister at Westminster Chapel in London. Has a really cool accent. And in some of those sermons, this was the, 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 the overlaying theme. He says, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed. And he goes, it's it's almost peculiar that you would hear Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because I think we could all stand in here and go, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I love Jesus and I will live for Jesus and I will tell people about Jesus. I am not ashamed of the gospel. But think about it coming from Paul. Think about it coming from this letter that he's writing to Rome. Who was Paul? He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He's raised as a, as a Benjaminite, circumcised on the eighth day, knew the law, obeyed the law. He was summoned by, by the Jews to go out and find Christians and have them persecuted for preaching something other than the law. I mean, Paul knew his Old Testament word. He lived it. He, you know, in a way, like he was the perfection of it walking around. And then he met Jesus and Jesus changed his life. And so for Paul to take all that and to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul might have been ashamed of who he was in the past. But he's going, this message of saying faith in Jesus Christ. I have faith in Jesus. It was so different than memorizing all that law and living by it. He was saying there's freedom in Christ. I am free. I'm free from the chains of the law that, that weighed me down so much. And now he's going to Jews who knew him and he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And they said, you're crazy. You're a madman. You're a fool. You are a fool. Well, 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says that uh, 
And y'all can let's turn there. How about that? First Corinthians one eighteen. One Corinthians one eighteen. For the word of the cross, the gospel, it's folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are dead, spiritually dead. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You might think that I'm foolish for preaching the gospel, but it's not about me and and my presentation of the gospel or the right or wrong words exactly that I'm getting wrong most of the time. It's the power of God in it. And that's what he's saying. It's God. It's God's power in it. It's God's salvation. It's God's reconciling power. It's God's forgiveness. It's God's completeness in Jesus Christ. That is what he was saying. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I listened to Charles Spurgeon, or I I read some of Charles Spurgeon. We can go to the next one. He was a famous preacher in the 1800s, a Baptist preacher. And he said this uh, in Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27, he says, uh, this is kind of like the overlaying verse of his sermon. He goes, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Let your conversation. Now, if y'all are looking, and it might say your manner of living. It depends on what, uh, what version you have in the Philippians 127. But that conversation, that Greek word for conversation, it means let your nature, let your character, let, let your being become the gospel of Jesus. It's not just about like, let every conversation that you have be about Jesus. Well, that's impossible, right? Wake up in the morning and see if every word that comes out of your mouth is about Jesus Christ. Every one of us would be a liar if we said it did, right? My brakes need fixing, you know? I'm sorry, I just left Jesus out of that sentence, you know? We have life that we're living, but you know what? In our character and our personality and who we are and how we are to other people, it's saying, let that be the gospel, Let that be so much louder than your words. Spurgeon, he would say this. He would say, have a heart like a lion, but have the hand of a lady. Oh, man, right? Okay, so he said this. Christ is the author. Christ is the author. He's the creator. He is the the, the beginner of everything, the initiator. And he says, Christ is the finisher. Christ doesn't start a good working us and then let us to ourselves. You know why? We would mess it up so bad. The second he was like, okay, I started this good work in you. You're on your own, buddy. Go for it. Second number one, I would fail so miserably that people would be like, Jesus didn't change your life. Jesus had nothing to do with you, man. It says that that's why he's the author and the finisher. It says, he will begin a good work. Philippians 1, 6, it says that he who began a good work in you, he will continue until the day of Christ Jesus, until you die or until Jesus comes back. Thank God. And then Charles Spurgeon went on to say, the gospel is good news. And that's actually what the gospel means. The word gospel means good news. 
That's what gospel means. It's good news. So Paul, he's saying, I'm eager to take the good news to you. I can't wait. I'm not ashamed of the good news. And I put up here just like these little points about scapegoat, right? And Pastor, he had explained before when, when explaining the, new, the, the Old Testament, of saying when Adam and Eve died, uh, when they sinned and they died spiritually, well, God, he had to cover their sin. So he took an animal and he shed the blood of an animal and he covered them. He covered their sins. He covered them with uh, the fur or whatever, the animal skins. But he had to shed blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus became what, what they call the scapegoat. He became that animal that the, 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 the Old Testament priest, they would take an animal and they would transfer my sin onto an animal in prayer. And then they would shed the blood of that animal and that was the forgiveness of my sin. Well, now Jesus is saying, I will be the animal. I will be the lamb of God. I will take the sin of the world and put it on me. And when they kill me and they shed my blood, I will forgive them. The scapegoat. And it clears our sin and clears death. And then what that does. This was said on Wednesday night and this is still ringing true. I, I can't get this out of my mind. It says, why are the flames of hell, why do they never go out and they're never quenched? Why is it eternal? Because There is nothing else that can quench that. There's no water. There's no touch water. Take a drip, just a, a drop of water and touch that to my tongue. That can quench that. There is nothing else that can put out that flame except one thing. One drop of blood from Jesus could quench the fire for eternity. One drop of Jesus' blood. The gospel is gentle. There, uh, there was a guy who, this was years ago, this was before I even moved up here, but I was told that at our Bristol Road lo location there was a church sign and that you could actually put the letters on. And there was a guy in charge of that and he put... <laughs> To pastors not knowing, he put turn or burn on New Haven's church sign. So pastor, in the morning, he pulls up and he sees this sign on New Haven. It says turn or burn. And I'm sure we're not the only church that had ever done that. And you're just thinking, come on, man. Like, seriously. Like, who's going to be, who already hates God and is going to drive by and see that sign and be like, I think I'll go there. No, they're going to think that people just hate that's crazy. The gospel is gentle. Although the message is true about faith in Jesus is eternity in heaven, or if you don't have faith in Jesus, it's an eternity in hell, the, the message of the gospel is gentle. There is a, a group called Westboro Baptist Church, and they have made it their claim 
to just talk about how much God hates sinners. And they will hold signs up and they're saying, God hates, and you just fill in the blank. And they protest and they just talk about how God hates, God hates, and God hates. And it's tough to see people that are saying, I love Jesus and God hates you. Doesn't make sense, right? Hate sin. Can't stand sin. Sin is what separates us, right? The sin over here is what's separating us from Jesus. Hate sin. Can't stand it. But I want my life to show Jesus. I want to show Jesus' love. That doesn't mean that I can't speak kindly to somebody or love them, even though that they're different and they have different sins in their life than I do in mine, right? I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine um, and they, they work at this uh, coffee place. Uh, and it's, I won't name it, but it's a popular coffee place. And they were saying that this, uh, they were handing out shirts. And like, if you didn't know, like this month is Gay Pride Month the month of June. And so they wear, you know, all these colors of rainbow and things like that. And the, and the person said, well, they gave me a shirt. And, and she's like, I didn't know how to take that. You know, do I take the shirt? Do I not? She goes, there was somebody who was like, refused the shirt. You know, and I said, are they making you wear it to work? And they're like, no. And I was like, take the shirt. Take it. You don't have to wear it. But... There, there, are, there are ways that you can go about it to say, you know what? I might not agree with Gay Pride Month. I have a friend that's gay. I have a cousin that's gay. Does that mean that I'm going to treat them like garbage because they don't love Jesus or whatever? No. It means that I'm going to show them the gospel in my speech and what I do, and I'm going to love them, and I'm going to treat them like a human being. And I will speak truth. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to say, I can identify something as sin, but I don't have to do it hatefully. Does that make sense? Okay. The gospel is gentle in that. God's plan of salvation. So when we go and we say we confess our sins and we repent and we believe in Jesus, this is what it's saying. In my study Bible, he gave these three great points. The ESV study Bible, God saved us from the penalty of sin. He has saved us from the penalty of sin, which was death, being spiritually dead. Now we are spiritually alive. God is saving us by the power, right? He's saving us by his power, but he's also, he's saving us from the, from the power of sin. Do y'all still sin? Okay, God has saved us from the penalty of it but God is continually saving us and it's a continual sense of the power of it. Can you overcome sin? Can you conquer it? Yes. Will there be a new sin the next day? Probably so. It's continual, right? Jesus' blood, he can rescue us and save us continually from sin, from the power of it. And then it says that he saves us. It says God will save us from the presence of sin. That means that when we are in heaven, it says if you're a Christian and you have repented and you believed in your heart and you have faith in your heart that Jesus died for you and he was buried and he rose three days later, it's saying that 
there is no sin in heaven. He will save us from the presence of sin. That's beautiful. We're not penalized for it anymore. We have the power to overcome it, and we will be away from it when we're in heaven. This is how Paul concluded, 1 Corinthians 2.2. He says, I decided, and this is a great way to close. He goes, I decided, I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Jesus crucified. If you could wrap it up and say that, that's it. I know nothing except this. Jesus Christ crucified. I know a Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified for my sins. Amen, right? So I'm going to ask the ushers. The ushers are going to come up. If y'all want a fuller story and Elizabeth come up, I want, if y'all want the, the fullness of all the stories, read the gospel, the good news of Matthew. Read the good news of Mark. Read the good news of Luke. And read the good news of John. Read it, and it will give you this full nature picture of Jesus in all aspects. Do you know him? Have you experienced Jesus? It is only by the power of God that we can be saved today. If you want to talk to me later, you want to talk to somebody else that's in the church about that, I would love to talk to you about it, man. Jesus saved me. He saved me from my sin. And I do not doubt at all where I'm going when I die. If there are some things that I'm sure of, that's it. I put all my everything into that. And we will talk about Jesus and we'll talk about him crucified. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Lord, we love you. And I pray that that would be our nature and our character and our personality and everything that we are. Jesus Christ and Jesus crucified. Thank you for the good news of Jesus. In your name, amen.